Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello and welcome, everyone. This is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction Season 3 Finale. Three full years, one episode a week, full of conversations with fascinating people dropping every Monday. And I absolutely love hosting this podcast because I learn something new from every one of my guests on every episode. High Truths is like a master's class on addiction. Each of you listening could easily earn a degree on the subject. And thanks to you, our listeners, because of you, High Truths has nearly 70,000 downloads and is ranked in the top 20 of addiction podcasts. But more importantly, the conversations that we lead have action, drug policy initiatives, and solutions. We're on episode number 157. And you would think that we would have exhausted everything there is to talk about drugs and yet, there's always more. We have a full season ahead with new experts and new high truth topics for 2024. And there has to be more because drug overdoses is the leading health crisis of our times. The CDC provisional data for 12 months period between June 2023 and the year before uh, has a predicted number of 112,000 overdose deaths. That is an outrageous and unacceptable death toll. 306 people a day, an airplane crashing out of the sky full of people. This episode of High Truth Seasons is dedicated to you. I know that each of you are passionate and opinionated on the issue of drugs and solutions. And on High Truths, we learn and together we make a difference. So now for our guests, we have an A-plus team of experts and they are amazing. And the agenda for today is a brief introduction of our speakers, followed by their opening remarks on their view of the drug crisis, uh, looking back at 2023. Next, we will open it up to your questions, and then we will close with words of wisdom and hopes for 2024 from our esteemed panel. Our experts are all people I respect, adore, and enjoy their company. Dr. Bertha Madras is professor of psychobiology at Harvard Medical School and former deputy director for demand reduction at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy at ONDCP. She has numerous scientific publications, courses, patents, and awards. I follow Dr. Madras's service at ONDCP, and she has been an invaluable mentor. 
we have Dr. Ken Finn, a pain physician practicing in Colorado and former president of the American Board of Pain Medicine. He is the editor of the only medical textbook on cannabis titled Cannabis in Medicine, an Evidence-Based Approach. Dr. Finn is my colleague and vice president of ISAAC, the International Academy on Science and Impact of Cannabis. Dr. Finn is very active on social media and closely follows the latest medical literature. And we have Ariana Campbell. She is a physician assistant working in the emergency department and, like me, knows the front lines of medicine. She's also the co-founder and principal investigator of the California Bridge Program. The program bridges emergency care and community health for people who suffer from addiction. Ariana is a powerhouse advocate and innovator for addiction treatment. And with that introduction, let's start with Dr. Madras. Um, can you share with us some high truth highlights for 2023? And I know you have some slides to share with us, so go ahead. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Ronit. It's always a pleasure to communicate with you. The High Truth season finale always tries to in invoke what are uppermost issues in our mind. And I would like to start with two pieces of good news with regard to drugs this year, and also five areas of deep concern. And I'll try to summarize these as quickly as possible. So these are the array of drugs that we are worried about in our society. And with new psychoactive substances, we probably can add a thousand pictures to this list. The good news is that among high school students, grades 8, 10, and 12, we have more increases in abstainers than ever before. Um, certainly, we haven't measured long prior to 2017. But as far as we know, these are some of the best data we've had in the past five years. These are 8th, 10th, and, and uh, 12th graders. They are using three drugs. Abst abstention is to alcohol, marijuana, and tobacco. They are abstaining from all three in their entire lifetime, and this number is increasing. It is a very good sign for the future because the trends among teenagers are going to set the trends in adults. Why is that important? Because young people who is smoke, who use marijuana, are much more likely to smoke. They're much more likely to binge on alcohol. They're much more likely to use alcohol heavily, and they're much more likely to use illicit drugs, including opioids. The other good news is that the trends that were set during COVID of a decline in drug use amongst high school students has not. Uh, reversed over the past uh, three years. And that is really important because we all assume because kids were confined to their home under parental supervision with much less social interaction, their drug use declined quite dramatically. A 5% decline in use is considered massive by ONDCP standards. And this was a very precipitous decline, but it doesn't seem to be reversing. So we should be thankful for that. But let's take a look at what my concerns are. My concerns are society and how we view drug use amongst uh, users, including social determinants, which I'll very quickly define, the legalizing movement, which is to legalize all drugs, 
and to eliminate essentially the uh, supply reduction, to eliminate any any kind of consequences for people who sell drugs that can either rot one's brain or else promote lethal overdoses. Prevention is another concern. There are no strong prevention um, efforts in our country that are nationally based from leadership, from uh, states, and we have, in, in, in contrast, we have a, a movement to normalize use, and I'll try to define that very quickly. With regard to treatment, we have a moving, moving targets with treatment. We are now entering a, a, a phase where a number of vocal people in academia, uh, as well as some people on the front lines of treatments, question whether or not abstinence is, you, is worthwhile and whether or not we should just... Um, uh, continue to administer harm reduction and leave people um, where they are. We are worried about safe supply because certainly in Canada, this has become institutionalized at the federal government, which means give people what we consider, what they consider safe drugs uh, without ever considering that safe supply does not guarantee safe use, and of course the harm reduction movement. We also see a medicalization movement which is very powerful for uh, hallucinogens, and that's worrisome. What is really important to note is that all of these factors impinge on all the others, so that if one movement begins, it can affect all the others, it can affect legalizing, it can affect prevention, treatment, and medicalizing of drugs. One policy or, or social norms can affect any other one or all of them. So what are some of the issues with regard to society? We're seeing increasingly an attention, attention being paid to social determinants of drug use, which includes poverty, childhood trauma, uh, very difficult neighborhoods to leave in and live in, and so on. You also see within our, we, we have to bear in mind that these social determinants of health are valid, but in some cases they completely ignore culture as well as personal responsibility. And this is a graph which we made a number of years ago. We're still trying to complete the publication, showing that within cultural subgroups in our society, if, for example, parents strongly disprove use of marijuana monthly, the use of any illicit drug is correlated with parental disapproval. And we can see here that the outlier are Asian families that have very strong um, adverse uh, views of using marijuana by their children, and their children's use is by far the least among all the other ethnic and racial groups in our society. We, uh, we also uh, see that within families, if parents strongly disapprove of marijuana, for example, the percent of their children using marijuana is directly correlated. It's actually, it's inversely correlated. The stronger the disapproval, the less the child uses. So families are critical and culture is critical in terms of determining substance use. 
The legalization movement has gained a great deal of strength over the past 10 years. It's a movement to legalize all drugs. It is a movement that's driven by a mantra called the failed war on drugs, although there's plenty of contrary and contradictory evidence on whether or not it's been a failure, and I can easily get into that discussion. Part of the legalization movement is not to arrest dealers and not to stigmatize drug use. We had a movement that was fairly successful in terms of destigmatizing people with substance use disorders because it ran counter to their willingness to admit they have a problem, to show up for treatment, to tell co-workers that they had a substance use problem. But this has now morphed into not stigmatizing any use at all. And so we're left with the issue of what kind of equipment do we have as parents, as uh, policymakers, as preventive specialists, if we don't even begin to stigmatize the use of drugs per se? And my mantra has been since I testified in Congress um, nearly 17 years ago that we should not stigmatize people with substance use disorders, but we certainly can stigmatize drugs. And so these arguments are very vocal currently, and the fingers pointed on people who still want to maintain a, a modicum of, of concern about drug use, and they're being designated as fossils or pearl clutchers. We have more youth using marijuana daily at higher potencies. That's part of the bad news. So what should we be concerned about with prevention? Prevention is essentially morphing into harm reduction. It is now considered secondary and tertiary prevention with very little, um, very little attempt to promote primary prevention. What does harm reduction mean? Um, the, the more benign and, and the more acceptable forms of harm reduction are Narcan, medications assistant, and needle exchange. Uh, all of these have a, cert, a very powerful evidence base behind them. But pre, uh, harm reduction, which is considered now prevention, um, a form of prevention, also implies safe supply of all drugs, drug paraphernalia, um, administering, and uh, certainly San Francisco is the poster child for handing out drug paraphernalia, supervised injection sites, destigmatizing of all drug use, which I've mentioned, and prevention campaigns are being mocked by people who are advocating primarily for harm reduction. As a result, normalization of drug use is rising, not among youth, at least by the, the most recent monitoring of future data, but certainly among people 18 to 25 and older, even and including the elderly. The prevention campaigns are in absentia. Parents should be on the front lines of prevention, and yet they are not being targeted at all in any prevention efforts. Harvard X, which is a, a program that I am um, driving currently, is developing prevention, uh, prevention web-based uh, learning for 
everyone in the community to how to pre protect young people from substances. And we're hoping to have completion by 2024. So I urge you to keep stay tuned for this project, which is very daunting, very complex, but it is moving forward at a reasonable pace. Treatment, as I said, we are being we are being bombarded by um, uh, by academics, um, people who write papers. Some people on the front lines saying abstinence it should not be a goal of treatment. Should not be a goal of treatment. It's it's an unequivocal statement. Rather than perhaps some people are not ready, so let's wait and try to keep them alive until they're ready for treatment. But just promoting treatment now is being is is being considered. Um, uh, uh, in fact, a, a, a false policy. Uh, so in, instead, they say meet people where they are. If they want to continue use, let them continue as long as they are not going to kill themselves or develop infectious diseases. And my counter to that is if you meet them where they are, you are essentially leaving them where they are. The other controversy with regard to treatment is there is a very um, significant campaign that claims that coercive measures do not work. In other words, drug courts are uh, should not be implemented or supported or sustained. Um, the involvement of criminal justice system, which mandates treatment, should not be and should not be promoted. I think that's a, a really a, it's a quantal and false narrative that says it doesn't work. There are many cases which and and many uh, several studies showing that coercive measures are as effective as voluntary. A lot depends on the quality of the treatment. A lot depends on the mindset of the individual being treated and their motivation, and also the people that they are surrounded with. So. The medicalization, legalization of all drugs, this is something, a slide that I used in 2013. I said it begins with opioids, medicalizing marijuana. We are seeing medicalizing of hallucinogens or psychedelics. We are now seeing a movement, certainly in Canada, to, um, uh, to promote safe supply of cocaine and methamphetamine. And of course, along with all of these will become will come new psychoactive substances. The commercialization of psychoactive drugs is being piggybacked onto legitimate medical research on their, their value or their use. So this is an article that I published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which I referred to. I said this is psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. The United States failed to prevent conflation of biomedical and commercial marijuana enterprises. The pattern should not be repeated with hallucinogens. Nevertheless, it is provocative these, these agents show some so short-term benefit for depression in selected populations. But the interest in the field is likely to remain high, particularly because the development of antidepressants targeting the hallucinogenic receptor, which is the 5-HT2A, without eliciting hallucinogen, hallucinations may be achievable. I will 
close by saying the role of parents is very critical. If parents never use marijuana, their children of 12 to 17 are much less likely to use if they used in the past year or used more than more less than 52 days or more than 52 days, regardless of whether it's a mother, mother or father, there is a high risk for use by children if parents are currently using. And the same risk is true for offspring 18 to 30 years old who are living in the same household of parents who have a past, past history or current history of marijuana use. The United States is an outlier with regard to drug use throughout the world in terms of marijuana use disorder amongst teens, in terms of opioid use disorder, in terms of opioid overdose deaths. We are a severe outlier. And to reduce drug use, we have to stand on four legs. We need prevention. We need intervention and treatment. We need supply reduction. And only then can we develop a healthier society. So I'm just going to close by saying, no, this is not a war on drugs. This is a defense of our brains, the repository of our humanity. Thank you. Thank you, Bertha. I love the slides and uh, the the graphics and animation. And also, whenever you talk, I feel like I have to take notes because you have such a great, important perspective that, that's not always verbalized, and you do that so well. Um, next, we have Dr. Ken Finn um, will share with us. I think he has some slides as well. As Dr. Madras had said, there's a lot of ground to cover here. And, you know, I've known Dr. Lev and Dr. Madras for a long time. And, you know, there really is not enough time to dig deep enough into the public health implications of expanded marijuana programs. And I want to hit some of the the high points and try to keep, no pun intended, uh, but I want to keep it somewhat brief, but kind of cover some of the, what I find are very important topics in this space. As most of us know, it, it isn't really a, a matter of a debate whether or not it's an effective analgesic or opioid substitute. I think the public health implications far transcend that debate. And I'm going to focus a little bit on the opioid epidemic. And I don't know, Dr. Levy, if you want me to cover my background or not, um, but I've been a practicing pain medicine physician in Colorado for nearly 30 years. <clears throat> and I'm board certified in pain medicine, physical medicine, pain management. <clears throat> I actually have a, a cannabis certification um, in, in cannabis science from the University of Colorado. I served on our governor's task force for Amendment 64, which legalized marijuana for recreational use, and served four years on our state's medical marijuana scientific advisory council. Um, I'm the current president of the American Board of Pain Medicine and have been on their exam council for over 20 years, writing test questions for providers that want to have a higher level of understanding and expertise in taking care in, of patients in pain disorders. And as Dr. Lev mentioned earlier, um, a member of the of Isaac, uh, co-vice president. And, and I, don't, I don't know if you touch base at the fact that we are, Isaac is now a, a member of the, the uh, Vienna NGO Committee on Drugs. So uh, I'm very honored to uh, work with people like Dr. Madras and Dr. Lev and have the utmost respect for them. Um, but let's focus on this the issues that I find uh, pertinent. 
the relationship between cannabinoids and opioids. I think it's very, very intricate. Uh, they belong to the same kind of uh, receptors, the G-protein coupled receptors, and when they are activated, they do the same kind of things. Uh, they're found on presynaptic nerve endings. Uh, they co-localize on GABAergic interneurons, which modulate pain pathways, and they share pharmacologic profiles, which does include anti-nociception or pain relief. Uh, so from a basic science perspective, it should be a good analgesic. Um, and interestingly, naloxone has been shown to have impacts on the cannabinoid system in several animal models. So this, this tight relationship between uh, opioids and cannabinoids is very well documented in the literature. Uh, the reason, the question is, why do people seek out the use of cannabis? And this nice review of reviews uh, from a couple of years ago show the most common reason is pain. And as a pain provider, uh, that's a big umbrella. And under under pain, you have uh, somatic pain, visceral pain, psychogenic pain, neuropathic pain, cancer pain. So, the, and under each of them, there's other subcategories. But pain in general is pretty much the primary reason people are seeking out the use of cannabis. Um, you know, there was an interesting uh, paper that came out last year about if you have immediate access to a medical marijuana card, you have a higher incidence and severity of cannabis use disorder, but no impact on your pain. Um, and just as a sidebar, I, I was a former registered medical marijuana patient in the state of Colorado, but full disclosure, I don't use. Uh, but I was curious to see what it took to get a card, and it took me 60 seconds uh, with no exam, MRI review, uh, asked questions of my prior treatment. And then I got my renewal about a year later without any fanfare. Uh, and here in Colorado, just in earlier this year, this came from Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, um, three providers made a quarter of all the recommendations in the entire state. One provider made between seven and 8,000 recommendations in one year. This is very reminiscent of the pill mills of, of uh, yonder years. Um, and in Washington, D.C., you don't even need to have a physician's supervision to call yourself a patient, a medical marijuana patient. You can go to a kiosk and say, I have headache or pain, and, and you can get your certification without the uh, supervision of a physician. Um, there's a lot of data, and we don't have time to dig into it, uh, but there really is no evidence. When you translate the basic science into real-world data, uh, there really doesn't seem to be any impact of cannabis that people are purchasing from the dispensary on multiple medical conditions, including neuropathic pain and MS-related spasticity. Um, a very important data point I always refer back to, and this is based on the youth risk behavior study from uh, several couple of years ago in 2020, that the number one risk factor for an adolescent to misuse their opioids is having ever used marijuana. And they looked at all other confounders, nicotine, illicits, alcohol, et cetera. But the number one risk factor was lifetime use of marijuana. Uh, one one interesting uh, paper that I found very interesting came out a few years ago in JAMA Pediatrics that marijuana tends to have a much higher addiction rate than opioids, and as a pain physician, found that very uh, fascinating. And then Wadiker published an interesting paper that the number one predictor of an adult misusing opioids is having used marijuana before the age of 18. So this, again, a very intricate relationship between uh, the both the cannabinoid and opioid systems. Here in Colorado, we voted to uh, legalize for a record for medical purposes in 2000, and we implemented it in 2001. With the platform to legalize, it's going to help our drug crisis. 
Um, the program lay dormant for several years because there was no infrastructure, there were no dispensaries, physicians and providers were, um, you know, concerned about recommending. Uh, but in 2009, that's when the dispensaries uh, opened up across the state to even to this day outnumber the total number of McDonald's and Starbucks combined in the state of Colorado. Um, and you can see after de facto legalization in 2009, our drug problem started to get worse. And then we voted to implement in 2012 and implemented it in 2014. And you can see it got worse. That's the 2019 data. Here's the 2020 data, which interestingly looks like the COVID curve. And fentanyl really spun off into its own beast, I thought at the time. And then most recent data in 21, it, they had to compress the graphic because the number of drug deaths in Colorado have simply continued to worsen. And then the 22 data, maybe we've hit a, a high point. I'm hopeful uh, that with a lot more education across the state, that we're starting to see a decline in drug overdoses in Colorado. Interestingly, over time, the mentions of marijuana um, going back to 2016, 17 have started to rise. And there's a whole discussion we're having is are these synthetics or are they, you know, medical marijuana, you know, are they other types of derivatives? And coroners don't really differentiate between the two. But interestingly, the mentions of marijuana over time have gotten up, which correlates to other drugs. Are, are they companion drugs? Are they, you know, by themselves? We don't know. Um, I published a paper last year that outlined and highlighted that fentanyl death rates were higher in legal marijuana states. That so was both medical and recreational. Here's the graphic from that. You can see that the big disparity of fentanyl death rates was much more higher in those states that had both medical and recreational marijuana programs. Um, you know, and there's other data that has since come out that cannabis is no better than placebo in the treatment of pain. Earlier this year, there um, there was no impacts on prescribing opioids or non-opioid medications or any type of interventions uh, to manage or mitigate pain. Uh, so marijuana doesn't seem to have the impact that the public opinion thinks it may have. Uh, this was a very interesting study from a few months ago looking at um, in military personnel and veterans because, you know, PTSD, et cetera. It was a pretty large meta-analysis of randomized controlled studies showing that it really doesn't do much for pain or PTSD in that patient population. Um, another paper came out several months ago looking at, um, you know, physicians aren't going to recommend crude cannabis. We don't recommend crude medication, uh, plant material uh, as a medication, um, but the evidence simply doesn't support cannabis, CBD, or other cannabinoids for most medical conditions. So before I shift gears, and, and just in summary, because I mean, there's a lot of, that can go into this space. I mean, my opioid talk alone can go about 45, 50 minutes or longer, uh, but currently there's no evidence supporting the use of dispensary cannabis for chronic pain. Uh, there's nothing uh, that supports substituting opioids with dispensary cannabis in particular. Uh, there's no package insert for the stuff people are purchasing at the dispensary. Many states don't have warning labels. Um, and cannabis users are more likely to develop an opioid use disorder or misuse opioids and have negative psychiatric impacts. And states with medical marijuana programs typically have higher op opioid overdose death rates than non-medical states. So any real benefit, again, looking at the basic science in terms of the way it modulates pain pathways, um, there's something there. Uh, but any of that benefit is certainly outweighed by the current evidence in, in, as it relates to opioids. Uh, one hot topic for me is in utero exposures. Uh, this was a, a picture based on a um, police investigation here in Colorado that had nothing to do with marijuana about seven, eight years ago. 
Uh, but as part of the police investigation, they found this Polaroid, which I think says a lot in one picture, uh, normalization of marijuana. Um, in Texas, for example, in, when you have a, a death from a, a child abuse or neglect, uh, the substance that's in kind of at the dance uh, by the perpetrator, either current or active use uh, or past use, uh, marijuana is certainly by far the most common substance found at the dance. When number two is nothing, fo followed by then the usual suspects at a much lower uh, incidence. Um, when you're talking about anuteral exposures, here in Colorado, um, more than 70% of the dispensaries surveyed recommended women use during first trimester. And that was a, that was 400 dispensaries in the state. So the person behind the counter is the bud tender, and they're making medical recommendations uh, without a medical license. And then the further data has come up showing there's problems with this. So for example, a few months ago, looking at uh, cannabis during pregnancy could lead to what are called lifelong cognitive deficits because of the way it interferes and disrupts the fetal endocannabinoid system, which is a very critical uh, factor in neurodevelopment. Um, in pediatric poisonings are going up throughout the, the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, there was a nice paper that came out earlier this year looking about a 1,300% increase of pediatric exposures and poisonings. Uh, many of them end up with central nervous system depression, and nearly 23% are admitted to the hospital. I'm sure Dr. Lev has uh, come across several of them in, in her work. Uh, here's the graphic from that paper from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, there was another uh, nice paper that came, looked at data from 52 children's hospitals in the Pediatric Health Information System database. Uh, again, very similar data, 13-fold increase of pediatric exposures. 15% uh, required ICU care, 4% required mechanical ventilation. So little people, uh, children, do not metabolize cannabinoids like the adults. So they can run into some pretty significant problems uh, in that. Uh, but back in the pregnancy data, this is SAMHSA data earlier this year, uh, more women are using during pregnancy, either near daily use and throughout total pregnancy, going back to 2015-16. Um, and we know that there's uh, problems with this. Most states don't follow this data, and I'm trying to encourage other states, including Colorado, to monitor this data in terms of substance exposure. So if you look at the first data point, um, uh, the, the bud tenders recommending and the dispensaries telling women use during first trimester, what happens to those babies after they're born? Well, you got to look at the numbers here. And, and using Connecticut as an example, um, there were 4,700 notifications over 28 months, which averaged out about 6.6 .6 babies a day in the state of, of Connecticut. Nearly 80% uh, were marijuana exposed compared to 20% opioids and less 3% of alcohol exposure. So by far in the state of Connecticut, uh, the most common uh, substance exposure for a baby was marijuana. Um, and then the data with the ABCD study going back several years, uh, following those children to middle childhood, ages 9 to 11. Um, and those kids were showing more psychopathology psychopathology, like psychotic-like experiences, problems, social problems, attention, thought problems. I did a, a PubMed review, you know, because women do, do use other substances during pregnancy, and I tried to find if there were any, any evidence of psychotic-like experiences to, to babies that were exposed to nicotine or alcohol or other illicit substances, and I found nothing. It really seems to be unique to the world of cannabis. Um, the, the prenatal exposure data, uh, in mental health disorders in children 
that continued to persist. This was an NIH and NIDA data came out last year uh, following those children, social problems, behavior problems, and those problems continue to persist. Uh, June of this year, um, they looked at, you know, what is the uh, early onset users associated with? And this is more data coming from the ABCD study. The most common predictor of early onset use is having been exposed during pregnancy. And here's the graphic from that paper. It was, it was pretty telling. The number one uh, risk factor for a person to start using marijuana early um, is having been exposed during pregnancy. Um, in Canada, interestingly, they they have other data that pediatric poisonings are going up. And what is the what is the why is Quebec why is the province of Quebec uh, flatter? And part of it, I think, is related to according to the authors, potency. Uh, they have a potency cap in Quebec compared to some of the other provinces. So they're having pediatric exposures as well. Uh, adolescent use is going up. We don't have good uh, uh, compliance with underage checks. Uh, teens ending up in the emergency department have gone up. Uh, Sam Wong from uh, Denver uh, showed an increase in, in teens presenting to the ED, predominantly with psychiatric effects. Here's the graphic I wanted to highlight between the, the marijuana and um, and uh, the can cannabinoids and opioids and more addiction with that. I think my slide may have got mixed, mixed up, but I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to that and answer questions later. Uh, the mental health effects with suicidality, depression, um, non-disordered youth uh, still have similar problems with suicidal ideation, depression, um, negative mental health effects. Even in CDPHE, uh, psychotic disorders, including schizophrenia, has been well-documented in the literature. First episode, psychosis, we know there's a problem there as well. Uh, large studies showing um, the relationship between cannabis use disorder and schizophrenia. One came out of, uh, of Denmark uh, following 50 years and 6 million people, and they feel they could have prevented 30% of schizophrenic cases by averting uh, cannabis use disorder. Um, in Colorado, marijuana is the most prevalent substance found in completed teen suicide. This is 21 data or 20 data, and in 21, it's 43% of completed teen suicides have the presence of marijuana, and that continues to get worse every year. And marijuana is the most prevalent substance across all age groups and most prevalent substance, you know, compared to alcohol, which used to be the number one. Here's the graphic. It did get mixed up. So just to, I want to highlight this, Renita, if you don't mind. Um, if you look at the early onset users, uh, 12 to 17, uh, compared to opioids, early onset users, they have a very similar addiction rate, about 10-11%. Um, and a year later, um, or three years later, the, the cannabis early onset users have a much higher uh, addiction rate compared to the early onset opioid users, which seem to be relatively static. The delay onset users of cannabis and opioids have very similar addiction rates after one year, about 6-7%. Um, and three years later, cannabis still had a higher addiction rate compared to the later onset users. And again, what is the most common predictor of an early onset user? In utero exposure. Uh, the, um, the brain is the primary target organ. The heart is the secondary target organ. We know there's cardiovascular effects with uh, arrhythmias, SVTs. Uh, older people are using. There's a 1,800% increase in older people, um, 65 and old, up. Uh, presenting to the emergency department in the state of California, which is, has the longest medical marijuana program in the country. There's the graphic for that. Um, you know, we, we don't have time to talk about product integrity and the, the heavy metal poisonings that can occur. 
um, you know, marijuana, chronic marijuana users have higher levels of cadmium and lead in their system. And recently this big, big um, concern of lead and applesauce, you know, 40 cases or so. Um, but they, they're kind of completely ignoring the fact that a lot of the marijuana products have lead in, their, in, in them. Um, so I put, did publish a paper about having these conversations with your patients. Um, you know, we have to kind of have a better standard of care uh, to legitimize any type of use because this is really going to uh, help pr protect providers from litigation uh, because the lawsuits aren't coming. They are already here because most providers have no idea what they're doing when it comes to this space. So I want to talk very briefly, you know, cannabis is not a medicine, it's a plant. I mean, we have a lot of plant-based medications like aspirin, digitalis, a lot of chemotherapeutic agents, et cetera. Potency uh, issues, uh, we should support a, a cap. Um, you don't grow medications at your home. Um, there's environmental impacts. So it was the impetus to um, to edit a medical textbook, which I, a year and a half of my life and that I won't get back. <laughs> Dr. Madras knows a lot about editing and writing um, books and papers. And it, it's I have a, a very high respect for people that edit. Uh, they do a fantastic job. Uh, it was also the impetus for uh, helping found Isaac and this is what I prefer to do before I go to work to kind of center myself. This is what I typically do during the summertime is go out for a nice mountain bike ride. So I'm going to stop there. I know it's a lot of information to cover in a short period of time. So I do appreciate the time and we'll answer questions when we're done. Thank you, Dr. Finn. Yeah, a lot of information, like textbook worth of uh, information, like yeah, honed down to a few minutes. Um, it's interesting when, when I hear you talking about um, how easy it is to get a medication compared to what I have to do as a doctor or, or any of our panelists who are physicians know, I mean, going to medical school and residency and, and board exams. Um, I think it's not just an issue of marijuana and the brain. It's a corrosion of our medical profession and integrity of that. Um, when you could just, you know, prescribe for yourself or make your own recommendation or go to a non-professional for medical advice. Um, but with that, we're going to switch gears um, off from marijuana into the harms probably of, you know, opioids, meth, things we're seeing in the emergency department on the front lines uh, with uh, Ariana Campbell. So uh, this, I, I'm I'm going to hopefully offer some hope here. Um, so we're trying to really turn crises into opportunities. So I'm Ariana Campbell. I'm a PA. I work in an emergency department. I also work in addiction medicine, and uh, I've started a, a clinic just to address opioid use disorder, substance use disorders in general, stimulant use disorder, and really to offer people hope. So this is the premise: all people deserve rapid access to addiction treatment, and the reason is that very few people are receiving it. So only 6% of people received treatment uh, for substance use disorder. And this is, you know, this is from SAMHSA in 2022. So what we are presenting as actual treatment, people are not getting for various reasons, either they don't want it or it's not working for them. And what we do know is in our emergency departments, one in seven people have a substance use disorder. So it's a prime time to actually offer treatment. So we have to acknowledge, I love emergency departments. I work in one. I work in an outpatient clinic. Renate, I know you work in one. Uh, they're visible. They're accessible. All hours treatment. You don't have to come in perfect. We will treat you. And we are great at treating co-occurring issues. And so seeing a substance use disorder as a co-occurring issue that is very treatable is incredibly important. We are giving buprenorphine often because it is safe, because we find buprenorphine 
it blocks other opioids. There's a ceiling effect on respiratory depression and it allows people to feel normal. So I am a part of Bridge. Bridge is a program of the Public Health Institute, and we had funding in California from the Department of Healthcare Services. And we've come up with an easy guide to guide people through starting buprenorphine. And this is, says emergency department, but people can be started in any setting. We also are getting the lock zone out there. So in a quick overview of our program, we are simply, and I know Dr. Madrasi said, well, we, you know, are we treating people where they are? Actually, if we imagine that they are in the emergency departments, we have to treat them there. So we're trying to deliver actual care, actual treatment, prevention, harm reduction, all of the things that we know actually can help. If we can deliver them where people are showing up, we can make a big difference. And the way we see this is we have a patient and when we connect them with community, the hospital, when we connect them with outpatient treatment, and we acknowledge that many of our patients are just as involved, that if we have a shared understanding that treatment is available, then we can offer hope and we can offer opportunity. In fact, most of our patients who are offered treatment accept it. So when we do this, we can connect all of these resources and create a system of care. So what we are doing in California is working. So we have started programs in 276 hospitals out of 320. When it says it's in 49 out of 58 counties, not every county in California even has a hospital. And per month, there's 8,500 people now seen for a substance use disorder. Um, people are being followed up, are discharged with a follow-up appointment, and we are administering a large amount of medication for addiction treatment. And if you look at emergency departments in getting new patients in care, so we talked about this enormous, enormous amount of people dying from overdoses, we have to engage new patients into care. And emergency departments, you see that big blue line, that's what we've done through California Bridge in new patients starting medications for addiction treatment, specifically for opioid use. So when we do this in our emergency departments, we're providing real access to treatment. Our goal is that every emergency department in the United States will be offering this just like we offer high quality care for strokes, for heart attacks, for sepsis, for everything that is high risk, high mortality, just like our substance use disorders. This is the team at my own site who's doing this. So I have a navigator and I've built a team and really tried to build what works for patients to, I, I ask a question of people you know, is it okay if I talk to you about your substance use and then engage people, offer them actual treatment, ways to, to allow them a healthier path, just like I do for diabetes, high blood pressure, everything else I treat. So I'm going to stop sharing. I just wanted to give a brief overview of what we're doing and the impact it can have when we do it well is when we incorporate addiction treatment into everything that we're doing and normalize it in medicine. So not normalizing substance use, normalizing treatment in every medical setting, we can make a huge difference. Thank you, Ariana. And I am a proud participant in the bridge program in the emergency department and looking for patients to connect them. Um, and uh, I, I, it is, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things we do when I see patients like that, especially after an overdose, they have a high chance of just dying if I don't do something about it. So having tools to intervene, I think is is Im, Im, important. Um, uh, so a lot of times when we talk about the issue of drugs, we're focused on whatever um, perspective we have, whether it's in the emergency department, 
um, whether it's just uh, talking about, you know, marijuana legalization. Um, but I like to have the global perspective because it's a part of all of that that makes it uh, important. So this is a time for your questions. If you guys can raise your hands um, um, and ask questions, I'd like to do that. I, I do want to start with an overall question. And again, like I uh, mentioned is uh, because I'm very proud of our community in San Diego because we have people who are in prevention, law enforcement, public health, public safety, all aspects. And each month we get together and think, what can we do together? Break those silos in order to help the community at large. We are spending a record amount of billions of dollars towards the drug problems. And yet we see those deaths going up and up and up. To me, that tells me something's not, something's not right. Well, even ones in our little silos are doing well, but something's not working otherwise because we're moving in the wrong direction. Um, the answer is a combination of all of the above. But what I wonder about is, are we spending the right proportionality? And uh, I'd like to learn from history about that. How did we do it with tobacco? How did we do it with opioid prescription? Remember the good old days when people were just dying from over prescriptions of the medical community? Uh, I wish we were back there. That's half as much of deaths as we're having um, today. Um, and, and there was a methodology of, of fixing the opioid prescription effort, which was maybe what we call today harm reduction. People who are on a bucket of medication, we just need to keep them alive somehow. And then preventing a new generation of people addicted to opioids in, in the first place. And that was kind of the formula of success for opioid prescription problem don't know if we're doing that. And and uh, maybe um, any one of you three have um, insights to, to how that fix. And maybe Bertha, starting with you, as you've had that White House global perspective in the past. We're allocating our funds uh, really in the wrong direction. Um, and I, I have to here be critical a bit of, uh, of ONDCP, uh, which is my one of my... Um, charmed places that I've always admired. Uh, Barry McCaffrey, who was the former drug czar under Bill Clinton's administration, President Clinton, uh, we, we had a reunion of all the drug czars in Washington just a few weeks ago, and he was the only one who came forward and said, our drug policy is absolutely a disaster. And I was nodding. I was going to give him a standing ovation, but I thought in the presence of other drug czars, it may not be politically judicious. <laughs> and the reason that uh, he and I agree so um, vehemently on this point is that we're just playing patch up and catch up on so many issues. We have very little budget allocated to prevention, even though on the books we have a whole unit uh, CSAP at uh, SAMHSA, which is supposed to promote it. I, I have seen very little national prevention, just denormalizing our current culture of drug use. That's number one. Number two, we have very effective medications for opioid use disorder, but we have two stumbling blocks. There are very few people who are receiving them, uh, and partly because CMS and some of our other federal agencies and our private third-party insurers refuse to put the squeeze on treatment centers to administer these drugs. The second component of that with regard to um, 
the presentation we just heard, which was really surprising to me because in so many venues that I have read data and statistics and spoken to people, motivating people into treatment is brutally difficult. And yet your program seems to have done extremely well but if it if it's 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 that good, it should be um, it literally should be disseminated throughout the country. Most people with substance use disorders refuse to be motivated. Most, and in Californians, for example, in San Francisco, people are offered treatment on the streets. They're offered housing. They refuse to leave the streets. So the real problem altogether is that we are spending billions upon billions of dollars, and we are not reversing the trend, except for youth. And I don't think it's anything the federal government has done to reverse these trends. I think it's coming spontaneously from a lot of kids, maybe a lot of conscientious parents, but it's obviously a certain change in culture. And we have to finally look at Asian culture, particularly Chinese, Taiwanese. What are they doing right in our country where their kids are in the same classrooms as other children of different racial and ethnic groups, and their kids are simply not using? They're using at one quarter to one third the rate that their classmates are. And there's something that we can learn from them in terms of how they parent to keep their kids drug-free. Thank you, Bertha. Does anybody else that wants to chime in or we can go to other? Well, questions? I was going to, I would th thank you, Dr. Majors. I was going to um, just offer that. Yeah, just, I mean, on my, on one of my last shifts, I, when I incorporate this in, I have somebody who thought that they could never stop using fentanyl. Like this was their life sentence because they had used for 10 years. But when we offered treatment and said, hey, we can make this easy for you, um, that person started the medication and following up two weeks later said that the only side effects were seeing hope and light at the end of the tunnel. So I do find that trying to make it really easy for people to access um, any treatment. I mean, I do the same for stimulant use disorder. I, I, I do the same for marijuana. I offer a way out. And I think that that's important. So, yeah, I think your, your, your data are just extraordinarily promising. I really appreciate it. But I think that we have to disseminate we have to figure, when Starbucks developed one a coffee shop, they figured out how to spread it in every neighborhood in the, in, in the entire country. And we're just not do, doing that with effective policies on drugs. I do have one, one follow-up to that, Dr. Madras. I think you, you hit it spot on. Um, despite everything that people like Dr. Lev and Ariana are doing, um, our problem is getting worse. It's, you know, despite the fact that we have widespread use of Narcan, the opioid reversal agent, now we're having things like Trank and other nitrazines that are starting to infiltrate our society. Um, and despite the fact that doctors are prescribing less, our drug problems getting worse. Um, I think even if you take a further step back, this is somewhat reminiscent of the opioid wars, if you think about it. Um, I mean, our what's happening? Where's this fentanyl? It's coming from China, a lot of this illicit fentanyl. It's very reminiscent from my perspective of the old opium wars. What's the best way to control the population is um, is uh, drug them, dumb, dumb them down. 
And now we're seeing it in, in a variety of instances, especially with the in the marijuana world of prenatal exposures. I mean, a lot of those impacts are intergenerational. They will be passed on to the next and subsequent generations based on in animal models, uh, just in the can cannabinoid space. So uh, our country is really in dire straits, and I and I am thankful for the work that Ariana and Dr. Lev are doing. And again, it they're kind of in their in a very isolated area. And I think there may be some pockets of good use. And, you know, this is where big pharma and big insurance get in the way. In my world in Colorado, um, they don't have very good treatment for opioid use disorder. They don't have good access to mental health care. Um, and, and that is what we really need in a lot of these patients that are struggling. Uh, and I, I think I'm very hopeful and thankful for the work that people are doing in other parts of the country. I just wish we had it here in my part of the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I think Ariana's working on getting that throughout. It used to be called the California Bridge Program. Now it's called the Bridge Program in order to get it um, uh, nation nationwide. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it does really change the culture because you're right, uh, Bertha, people with a substance use disorder are resistant to treatment. That has been my, you know, 25-year experience in the emergency department. But once we have a tool, like... You you know we the ER is a place where we fix problems. So once we have a tool, you know then I have something for you to do. Then it becomes you know then we could do something. We're very frustrated when there's not something that we people are homeless. What am I going to do about that in the emergency department? Well, I can give you socks and a meal and a referral to case management. So yeah. now I have something to do. It becomes, and yeah. with opioid use disorder, it's harder with stimulants and with cannabis. We don't have as many tools. So, yeah, I mean, um, just like I said, if I come in, somebody comes in and they have diabetes, of course I'm going to start them on insulin. I'm not going to make them jump through hoops and go to dietary counseling and all the, th the things first. And I think once we did that just for opioids, it really opened the door to what we can do for alcohol use disorder. So um, I do find a lot of people we we have historically had like, you know, people are honestly just dying. I mean, there's a huge amount of mortality from from alcohol and huge prevalence in our emergency departments. And then it was either that or AA, like we did nothing in between. And so just trying to decrease people's use and engaging them in medical care. So I'm doing this from a medical setting. I am I am able to help people reach their goals, which is often to completely quit because I have a lot of people who are dying from alcohol use. And so, but utilizing some of our tools in medicine to get them there, I'm some of the numbers need to treat are like nothing we've ever seen in medicine. Like these medications work and this kind of treatment works. We just have to get it out there and make sure that it's part of normal practice for yeah. everyone. Like create that shared understanding that there's hope in this. And from the prevention side, I've got four teenagers. I have had this huge focus on prevention. <laughs> and a lot of it I have found is providing real information, not scare tactics, not lying about it. I've just provided real information, really provided connection and tried to address uh, just any of the, the misgivings. And, you know, we're, I think as parents, we're all we're all working hard at like, how do we prevent use? <laughs> you know, we want to pre preserve our kids' brains. So uh, I'm in that with you. Wonderful. Well, the most amazing thing is that of all the addictions that we have, the opioids are the most deadly. Uh, they kill instantly, whereas alcohol takes years, tobacco takes years, cocaine can be instant, but, you know, the, the overdose deaths are nowhere near fentanyl. Uh, and yet, um, we simply don't have a distribution system and a motivational system 
to administer these drugs, these medications. It stuns me. Um, as I said, Ariana has wonderful data, but some of the other data that's been published show that uh, more than 60% of people who are offered medications after an overdose uh, just turn the, just walk away. They never follow up. The number that actually follow up, um, and one of the, I was vilified uh, viciously by a certain people in, in this country when I said that we need to have people transported to the emergency department after an overdose. So there, there is that opportunistic moment to to try to motivate them into treatment. And uh, that 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 really did not go over well by well, people. You, you have to go to the emergency department after an overdose, not just because of you know connection to treatment, but because you could die and have ARDS and you could be narcotized. And there's a lot of reasons, just life and death reasons that you really should yeah. call nine one one and yeah. go to the emergency department. And after. and the Good Samaritan laws take care of people who are bystanders and all that, and yet we just don't see that most people after rescue just walk away and because right. most people are rescued not in emergency departments they're rescued in, in we do places. we do what we can do but we do need to move the needle and we're not yet moving the needle so that's that is annoying although we are making progress with more treatment for opiate use disorder i think we are we are seeing a record uh, amount of that um record number of naloxone sadly um, um, but I want to take some other questions. Uh, Joe Everstein, my colleague with Center for Community Research, um, heads the Marijuana Prevention Initiative, now changing name to Cannabis and Public Health. Uh, Joe, thank you for all you do. And what's your question? Well, hello, everyone. Um, great podcast, Dr. Lev. Hello, Dr. Finn. Hello, Dr. Madras. Uh, great information, Ariana. Um, I do have a question because you know, in San Diego, we are going to be having a lot more retail marijuana businesses. So if you were tasked with developing public health signage for these businesses, what are the must-haves in the sign? Oh, I'll feel that one. <laughs> There's a lot. Um, there, There is risk of cardiovascular effects, including rhythmia and sudden death. Uh, there are risks for, um, you know, especially if you're co-using opioids. I think something, so I, what I've been trying to get in my state is having the, the I guess, for lack of a better term, a package insert uh, for cannabinoid products of uh, the risks of during, don't use during pregnancy. You know, smoking isn't good for your lung. There are cardiac events. There are psychiatric events, psychosis, uh, potency warnings. And we've been, we've gotten so much pushback um, in Colorado, and I'm sure you guys have as well in California and other states of trying to put warning labels and educate the consumers um, because of product integrity issues. I mean, uh, Dr. Lev is very well aware of anticoagulant rodenticide that is found on product and people's blood can get too thin. Drug-drug uh, interactions. I mean, most people don't understand that CBD has 586 drug interactions. I had a conversation with a patient yesterday who's like, what do you think about CBD? I go, well, what medicine are you taking? Well, I'm taking ibuprofen. So I went to drugs.com. I put in cannabidiol. I put in the interaction with ibuprofen and it's a moderate interaction due to liver impacts. So the, the, the medical community doesn't even know this. How in the world is the lay person gonna know this? 
The industry knows this. They just don't want to let the consumer know this because they're going to lose business because it's all about the almighty dollar. So in the cannabis space, I think it's a it's, you need a big push for warning labels. And under those warning labels are things like lung, brain, heart, pregnancy, psychosis, potency. Those are the those are the big ones from my perspective. Dr. Finn, do you have any good posters for a shop regarding prenatal cannabis use? No, I got a picture. I have to find it. Um, one of there was a there was a marijuana dispensary that at the exit of the door that was and the paint was all different shades of green was a very very tiny microscopic warning on pregnancy that had green like background so it like basically blended in with the wall the wallpaper or the paint so nobody saw it nobody can see it um, in Colorado some of the products do have those warnings um, but you know. A lot of people that just get their prescription medications throw out the package insert. There has to be a really big push to educate the consumers. I mean, we have recalls like three to four times a month on things like arsenic, things like cadmium, things like uh, molds and fungus. I mean, people can have died. It happens all over the country and people aren't connecting the dots. And I think it's important that these dots are connected. Um, so that you, you protect the consumer, you educate the providers because they're getting sued now um, because they don't know what they're doing. They're saying, okay, well, we're going to, you, you have a history of major depression, major depressive disorder. Therefore, we're going to recommend that you use marijuana to treat your depression. And that person ends up with an acute suicide attempt. Um, that doctor is um, responsible, in my opinion. And I think it's important that the medical community is educated. I think the cannabis community needs to be educated and they need to be a little more educated and take responsibility. So they are protecting their consumers because guess what? They're going to get roped into a lawsuit too. Yeah. By the way, the, um, the CDC has a poster on marijuana and pregnancy and NIDA has a, a, um, a very good uh, website outlining it. So it's worth taking a look at these. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Um, Jesse LeBlanc, you had a question. Yeah, just it just seems to be in the United States. If you look at all the research, it's like I I don't know what this love about getting high is in our. I, I'm maybe it's just me, but you know I grew up with it in the '70s, and I see it repeating history again today. But why is it? I just I, I have a hard time understanding the psychology behind this desire to have the altered state of consciousness, and it's just not healthy, you know, mentally or physically. That's a good question. We are kind of the target. We're the leaders of, of cannabis. We're the leaders of drug overdose. Um, we are a rich society, so we can afford uh, drugs that poor countries don't have. But who wants to tackle that question? I mean, I could start it out. I mean, humans have used some form of you know mind-altering substances, drugs, for since as far as humans go back. So that's not a new issue, but it's certainly much more prevalent in the United States. I do 100% believe that what when we inundated the United States with opioids, when there was almost one prescription for every American, that that was a big problem. You know, we exposed most brains to opioids and that, that we have to own. Um, that being said, there's um, people like dopamine, you know, so um, and we do know that there's deep roots. I mean, average, I think it's average age of the development of a substance use disorder is age 15. So when we talk about prevention, I mean, addiction is a pediatric illness, right? Uh, average age of first, first um, treatments, 26. 
those are formative years in the brain. And if we bridge that gap, that would be enormous. But prevention has to happen really young, you know, junior high school, um, you know, uh, you know, in elementary, elementary school. school, actually. Yeah, elementary school. Yeah. yeah. You know, just in, in, um, in another comment along those lines, I mean, like you had mentioned, Ariane, that, that people, the humans have been using substances for thousands and thousands of years. Interestingly, um, cultures like the Aztecs that had psychedelics, they were very known for savagery and violence. Um, there was a paper that was published literally three weeks before the Israeli conflict about Palestinians and their use of cannabis was the number one substance there. And then they had Captagon, uh, which is an, a stimulant, uh, were found in a lot of the uh, Palestinians that were that started the conflict. So substances and acts of violence uh, is not a new phenomenon. I mean, it goes back thousands and thousands of years, even the Aztecs, the Incas, uh, the, the, the psychedelics. And I don't know, uh, with Jay's question, what is our, why are we so enamored with with these types of substances? Uh, and I think you nailed it when you said people like dopamine. I mean, that is really the nuts and bolts. That's at the end of the day what it is. Um, but I think what we have to acknowledge the power of supply, right? We have a fentanyl problem now because we have a supply of fentanyl. We have less of a heroin problem because we have less of a supply for heroin. And so, but as, as I noted, factors you know, are important, but supply is huge, and we have a huge supply. Is well, huge. We, well, fentanyl death rates are higher in pot states because we have a huge supply of, of marijuana as well. I mean, I think I think they are always at the dance together. It seems. Well, the, I, first of all, I would love to go back just to the the primordial use of of substances. Um, we have to remember that many of the substances like hallucinogens never really crossed over into Europe. Marijuana was unknown to Europe until the 19th century, and even then it really didn't take off. Uh, wine and beers and alcohol-based drugs have been around for millennia, but there are only pockets that used, for example, cocaine or marijuana and, and, and opioids in history. What is different now is that we were able to isolate the active constituents of these drugs, number one, because chemistry came in around the end of the 18th century, and we were able to make highly purified, highly potent forms of different drugs. That's number one. Number two, agriculture became very uh, 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 very effective and efficient. Number three was the distribution networks of these drugs throughout the world. Uh, until there was transportation, nobody went to South America to test um, hallucinogens or went to Turkey where marijuana grows everywhere in the wild. Um, there just wasn't that level of transportation, distribution, and, and chemical synthesis that we have now. Combine that with the fact that these drugs are, are very inexpensive and the fact that in the past, other than alcohol-based substances, almost every single drug that was used was used ritually under very constrained conditions. People just did not use drugs. Uh, for example, the hallucinogens by the Amerindians, they were not used um, except for ritual and religious purposes. And, uh, you know, the access to children was restrained. So we have changed so many factors 
that are very different now than they were 2,000 or 5,000 years ago. And, and I think we have to recognize that along with amazing technology, chemistry, research and development, we have, this is a, a malevolent side product of it. The synthetic part of it, you're right, Dr. Madras, is that in, in Renit, that with the supply and that just huge boost in supply, um, as, as you know, we see this drive from the synthetic opioids. So. Yeah, and, and, and marijuana is no longer a natural plant. Anybody who says it's only a plant, it's risible because, uh, first of all, only a plant. We have over 300,000 species of plants on our planet. And of those, uh, less than 300 are edible. The rest have poisons in them. And the poisons are designed to interfere with our nervous system. They're designed to interfere with our GI system and other parts of our functioning organs because plants don't have hands, they don't have feet, they don't have teeth. They can't protect themselves, so they protect themselves chemically. And at least for two drugs that I know, which is um, marijuana and cocaine, they're insecticides. And the plants develop them in order to interfere with normal um, brain with normal brain communication so they wouldn't be eaten. Ariana, we have a question for you about the bridge program. I know the bridge program offers, you know, uh, a treatment for opiate use disorder. I don't know if there's really much uh, doing with methamphetamine, but I know that you have recommendations on alcohol. The question is, are you offering um, uh, any type of program for cannabis use disorder? I actually uh, don't think there's much out there. We have a lot about tobacco cessation. I, I just talked to, there's a CDC has a cannabis unit and I uh, made a pitch for them for their strategic plan that they should have a cessation plan for people who need to want to quit uh, marijuana. So the question is, does the bridge program have anything on that? Or are you planning that? No, that's a good idea. I mean, we are seeing a huge amount of hyperemesis in our emergency departments. We've come up with some ways to treat that better. Um, we have navigators, and my navigator does navigate people to care for cannabis use disorder, but there's not necessarily any other intervention in the emergency department at this time, but certainly reviewing evidence and seeing mm -hmm. if there's more that we can do, I think is is really helpful, especially given the prevalence of cannabis use disorder or hyperemesis in our emergency departments. Yeah. And it's a, and it's can you believe that we probably see how many times a day do you see cannabis hyperemesis syndrome? Yeah, and you can hear it. I always say they're my most miserable patients in the emergency department. Yeah. They're really suffering. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, I had a pretty hairy case the other day. So yes, um, we are seeing, I mean, I'd have to look at the percentages, but at least three or four, you know, that's probably a percentage. Um, a it's every single day. Every, every single day. Single right. Day. And do you know that to date, the CMS, we do not have an ICD-10 code for cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. It was only now introduced this year, and yeah. it, we won't see it for another year or two. So yeah. we're so behind. We don't in, know. In documenting. Yeah, it, we, we don't know what we can't measure, what we can't. Right, right. So no, we're really, uh, we can't I advocate for physicians to, in their code, because CMS is so behind, just to put the word cannabis poisoning, methamphetamine poisoning, cocaine opiate, whatever it is, instead of just saying poly drug use, because yeah. the people who make health policy take this data and create policy based on it. And if we as physicians don't code, then nobody knows the problem. 
Yep. Right. I've been so looking for that code for a long time. So I'm glad at least they're going to start developing it. Yeah. Um, then we'll have some idea. But even with stimulant use disorder, we do, um, I will give medications in the emergency department. My goal is to get folks sleep because we see all of the bad things happen when on binges, when people are not sleeping. And so both treatment, trying to reduce craving, trying to connect with contingency management, um, really looking at all of the things, you know, ASAM and AAAP just came out with a guide. Um, it's very long, but we have we have some, uh, you know, a bridge to treatment. We also have some things that people can really consider for methamphetamine use. Great. Um, and then there's a question for you, Bertha, about you, you mentioned the importance in, in parents and primary prevention. And, and even like Ariana said, this is a pediatric disease. What's the best way of reaching parents? Well, it's it's been a failure in many places. Uh, schools uh, have parent nights to discuss these issues, and very few parents show up. Uh, some of them are unwilling to show up because they uh, don't want to seem as if they're concerned. Um, many the parents who do show up are the parents whose children do have problems, and they're trying to get information. Uh, my feeling is that uh, we don't have very creative ways of recruiting parents into this issue. One of the biggest problems is is that many, not many, but 10% of parents use marijuana. And because they use marijuana, they're not interested in finding out uh, anything negative about it. They're committed to, to its use. And so without without realizing it, they're je jeopardizing the health and future safety of their own children. Or they do and they, they feel that it's not a problem. I have spoken to some very high-profile people that probably everybody on this, um, on this conference would recognize who had children with terrible, terrible heroin problems. And all the... They, they told me, they confessed over dinners and lunches that they started to use marijuana with their kids in order to bond with them, never once realizing that the use of marijuana could, not in all cases certainly, but in vulnerable children, could lead to heroin use. And um, they suffer immensely because of this transition but without realizing that they all believed at the onset that marijuana was benign. So getting to parents is a very difficult problem. We're hoping through this Harvard X program that we are going to um, we're going to reach globally as many parents. And in a, in a sense, it's very useful because. There are many people who don't want to show their face in a crowd that are concerned about this. But if they see it in the privacy of their home, it may be more effective where they can have interactions. But the course is interactive, but they can remain anonymous <clears throat> and they can view it without other people looking at each other. Right. So if we look at the problem downstream, we're, you know, giving naloxone and resuscitating people after an overdose. Before that, we're treating opioid disorder addiction with medications. Um, upstream from that, really have to talk about marijuana. Because if I ask any one of the patients mm -hmm. I see at the bridge program who are there for treatment, 
their journey on drugs. What's the first drug they ever, ever use? Sometimes they don't even think of it's a drug. They'll say, oh, I used heroin at age 21. I said, no, what's the first drug you ever used? And it'll be, oh, well, that's just weed when I was 14 years old, which is important because their brain has had that high dopamine need since they were 14 years old where their brain was forming. And that means they won't have one week of Suboxone and be better. They're going to need to be on it for a while. So that, that history is important. And upstream from marijuana is how do we deal with uh, the challenges of life and the emotions that life gives us without going to drugs. I think that's all important. We've had a very lively chat. We cannot like uh, express it all here in the podcast. I so appreciate everybody on this call. Many of you have been on this show or asked questions for this show. So uh, these are my favorite people joining us for this season finale. So I want to say thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Madras, Dr. Finn and Ariana. Um, and uh, just for closing remarks, uh, Dr. Finn had to go save uh, lives and in clinic, but uh, closing remarks with uh, you, Ariana, and, and then Dr. Madras. Sure. I guess it's a message of hope. Uh, we're really focused on actually decreasing overdose deaths. And I think that's important in name. I think it's important to engage uh, clinicians all over the place. And I think it's important to the talk to talk to the people we're not talking to, like parents. You know, I went to the elementary school and talked to the teachers. So everybody has a shared understanding of what substance use disorders and substance use disorder treatment looks like in 2023, 2024. And so I really encourage everybody, I, we, we have to change our thinking. We have to change the paradigm. We have to get it out there and engage more people so we can save lives. Awesome, very important. My feeling is that we can reverse course in this country. We've denormalized smoking. We've denormalized alcohol use. The data for young people's use of both those substances is dramatically down. It's just remarkable. The problem is that we have to start denormalizing all the other drugs, and we have not done a good job of that. Number two is, and I think this is very important for parents, once a child leaves the, the embrace of the home and the comfort and the oversight, it, everything changes. The, the largest, largest increment increase in drug use occurs when children leave home at the age of 18 or 19 and go off to college or go off into independent living. And that big uptick really does reflect the fact that children under the uh, uh, under the guardianship of parents is a critical prevention factor, and we have to figure out how to continue that oversight into our so-called adult children who are nowhere near adults. Because at this point, I am still learning, and I'm a hundred years old, and I am still learning every single day. There's no such thing as adulthood for me. And certainly at 18 or 25, that is not a fully matured individual. And yet parents can have this enormous, enormous influence if they 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 continue that that uh, that kind of not necessarily oversight, but that kind of concern past the age in which a child leaves home. Thank you so much for that. I want to say once again, a huge thank you, Dr. Madras, Dr. Finn, Ariana. You're extremely busy and you've been very gracious to make time to share your insights and hopes with us. Uh, thank you for your dedicated service to the people who have a substance use disorder and for preventing the disease of addiction. And to our participants today, you are amazing. 
You brought some great questions, great conversations. You have boots on the ground and experience and passion for your work and advocacy. I know many of you and respect you and thank you. Um, you inspire me of, of what we're doing with this podcast and with policies. So I am I'm there for you. Um, you know, the, the people who suffer is the reason that I do what I do. So I want to bless everybody with a happy new year. May 2024 bring you health, happiness, and meaning. And we'll see you again in 2024 for season four of High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.